Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Myths and religion help us make sense of the world around us. And what is more unknowable and chaotic than nature? There is little else quite so dangerous to humans as being exposed to the elements. Frozen on an icy wasteland, lost in a wood impossible to navigate, pulled into the deeps by an unexpected current. Even with scientific knowledge we have today, it is fun to imagine these forces that are not, you know, not quite as explainable as we may think. Stories involving nature spirits continue to delight, including those by Emily Tesh. Silver in the Wood is one of my favourite novellas from recent years, and seeing that Drowned Country, the second book of the duology, was out earlier this year, I knew I wanted to take the opportunity to speak to Emily and, of course, make Charlotte and Lucy also read her books. (laughs) So we're really, really happy to have you on the podcast today. Emily, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm very excited to be here. I'm Emily Tesh. Um, I wrote two novellas, uh, The Green Hollow Duology. Uh, The first book, Silver in the Wood, is about what happens when the wild man of the woods meets a curious young folklorist with uh, no common sense. And the second book, Drowned Country, is about what happens when you used to be a curious young folklorist with no common sense, and now you are the folklore. Um, Some people have pointed out that I have, in fact, written a book about what happens when your hobby becomes your day job. Uh, That's a side effect. Um, Mostly I wanted to write books about relationships with the wilderness. Well, we love wilderness and, and woodland spirits and all sorts of natural things. So we were quite excited to um, get you on. Um, <laughs> but from from the beginning of time, humans have anthropomorphized natural elements such as the woods, trees, lightning. You know, why do we love doing that so much? And why do some parts of nature and natural elements lend themselves more easily to these kinds of nature spirits? I think to answer this, it's almost something that can't be answered in words. What you really need to do is go for a walk somewhere wild. And then the question answers itself. I remember for me, um, about a year ago, I was in Greece and I visited the site of Delphi, which the ancient Greeks believed was the navel of the world, um, the sort of center um, of everything. And you visit this site, and it is now now a tourist site, of course. There's a lovely museum. There's a lot of people there. There's lots of little hotels. Um, but if you stand up there on the like the, the massively steep hillside looking out across um, the landscape, you just have, for me, it was a moment of, oh, goodness, something powerful is here. And I think there are places in nature where you find yourself with a sense of the the numinous, the extraordinary. Um, And it's unsurprising that people read divinity into these moments of nature. Nature has a scale and a power and also an immunity to human interests sometimes that is just overwhelming. 
I wondered if an element of it might be things that have sort of a composite life. So I was thinking that sort of woods and seas contain a lot of natural life. And even though trees are stationary and don't really move anywhere, they are living and growing. And if you think about sort of more inanimate objects, they tend to be anthropomorphized if they look human, like you get um, hills that look like it's someone lying down. So therefore it's a giant that fell asleep. I mean, do you think that has something to do with the, the element of life associated with that natural feature? Or can you think of examples where they have genuinely gone, oh, that mountain is clearly a god, apart from volcanoes. Volcanoes don't count. <laughs> well, uh, a volcano, I think, does have life in it. I think the idea of things that, that move and act um, of their own will, it's, it's natural to read life into them. But yeah, I think there is also, you're right, the anthropomorphizing tendency of like, that looks like a man, that one is a dragon. The uh, I think it's the Welsh dragon that's meant to be the hills, um, sort of sleeping in the hills. Um, and then there is the tendency to sort of see faces in things. I mean, even just lying on your back, looking up at the clouds, you see pictures, you see images, and that's a very human thing to do to, well, to pattern recognize um, and to go, I, I recognize that, I know that this must be something that I understand. So when we are thinking about natural places, natural areas being given character traits, do you think that there are particular human traits that are assigned to particular natural elements? Uh, for example, the one that I thought of was that many personifications of the sea are seen as wild and unpredictable and often quite merciless. Um, my favourite example being the one in Small Gods by Terry Pratchett, where you have the Lady of the Sea who's just not really bothered as long as she gets sacrifices and the bigger the better. Um, so do you think there are other personifications in nature that have particular character traits? And do you think that there's also an element of saying, well, actually that natural element is is more feminine or perhaps more masculine? Um, I really liked uh, your, your example of the sea, um, which I think is a fascinating one to look at because um, the sea, I think, is a really good example of like the logic, if you like, of anthropomorphization of, of characterization in nature um, it makes sense for characterizations of the sea to be um, wild and merciless and untrustworthy because it's all about relationships isn't it and it's it's all about human relationships with the natural world and human relationships with the ocean uh, are not have not exactly always been friendly it's a very very dangerous place and my mind always goes back to um, the Greco-Roman classics, uh, that mythology, because I am a classicist um, by training and it's a passion of mine. Um, and I was thinking about the very, very, very many sea gods there are. Um, and one thing that's common to a lot of them is the idea of shape-shifting and shape-changing, uh, which makes sense uh, when you think about the behavior of water and how water shifts and the same ocean can from one day to the next be a, a beautiful and calm expanse and then um, a incredibly dangerous enemy. And then that thinking about gender, the sea again, I thought was a useful one here because it kind of, that one does actually go both ways. You, ha you have sea gods, you have the old man of the sea, you've got uh, Poseidon, the great classic with his trident. Um, but you also have uh, feminine figures, um, nymphs, dryads, um, water spirits, um, Amphitrite, um, moving 
to say a more British Isles myth, you have figures like the Selkies um, or mermaids that come up over and over. And I think some things are actually quite hard to assign a gender to. And you can see people trying because of what I was saying, human beings like to like to pattern fit things, like to put things in categories. Um, and I find it interesting the way that with um, nature divinities, if you if you look at different cultures and different societies, uh, there isn't always a pattern. Um, Sometimes in some cultures, the sun is feminine and in some it's masculine. Um, in some traditions, you have uh, male gods of the sea or female gods of the sea. Um, but there's that sense, which I really find interesting and which I enjoyed writing about, of nature as something like hard to categorize and hard to get your head around um, as much as you want to. Do you think the kind of anthropomorphizing, um, you know, our desire to do this, and you also talked about humans wanting to make patterns out of things. Do you think that's in any way related to the fact that I think you can see this in extreme sports in a way like, you know, the mountain climbers who have terrible accidents and yet go back onto the mountain again. And, um, and I think when I was reading, I think it was like Mont Blanc, one of Shelley's poems about, you know, this kind of sublimity of nature. And yet so many people still die trying to somehow conquer nature or feel like to make humanity's presence felt. And yet the mountain is as solid and unmoving and as merciless as the sea in a way. Um, do you think that this kind of, um, you know, our desire to put a human face onto something that is very inhuman is part of our desire to somehow gain some kind of supremacy over a force that we will never have supremacy over. Yes, um, I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, interesting you go to Shelley, actually, because that sort of early 19th century um, romantic vision of nature um, so as actually sort of the first time in well in European culture that you you really get the the idea of nature's essential sublimity as something worthwhile in its own right before that you get um nature is has always been something to be tamed and something to be controlled and something to be, yes to be conquered but even once you hit the romantics and oh, oh aren't, mount, aren't mountains lovely actually you still have that that urge for conquest and Silver in the Wood um, is set in a sort of 19th century milieu. I was a little bit vague about exact dates because research is for chumps, um, but it was very much set in Victorian era for a reason, which is that is the period at which you have um, both a sudden like flowering of appreciation for nature, um, look at this wonderful world, and at the same time, and almost as a function of that, this increased desire for control. And it is an imperialist desire, if you like. It's a, it's a, um, it's a desire to master things. And that, I think you could argue, is gendered, um, or was for the Victorians. And that was part of what I was working off when I set up the sort of romance dynamic between Henry Silver um, the Victorian scholar and the wild man of the woods, Tobias, who doesn't relate to nature in that same way. I was thinking about how you were talking about the Greco-Roman gods earlier. And um, 
this might fall down. I'm sure there are, this is a huge generalization, but I was kind of thinking about them and how people assign natural elements to them because you've got like Zeus and Poseidon and they've all got the big thunderbolts. They've got the sea. You've got Hades who's got the underworld. They've got all the really destructive elements. And then you have people like Demeter, um, who's obviously the goddess of corn and, you know, the seasons and things like that. And then you've got um, Hera, who's the, the goddess of marriage and all these wonderful things. And in a weird way, I kind of feel that in Roman times, they if it was dis- destructive and powerful and awesome, it was given to the boys. <laughs> and if it was kind of nurturing and, you know, provided stuff, then it was given to the women. And obviously, you know, that that skews a little bit when it comes to something like the sea, which can, you know, provide you with fish and sustenance, but at the same time, wipe your village out. So obviously, there's always a bit of a balance in nature. But I couldn't necessarily think of that so much with the nature spirits. I thought when you kind of got down to this folkloric level, you do get a mixture of destructive elements that are represented as feminine and um, prov- providing elements that are very masculine. And I think, like you say, having set your books in Victorian England, where, you, again, you have very defined gender roles, I thought that worked really nicely with balancing out the nature spirits with, you know, destruction and, and providing, and particularly the way that both Tobias and Henry go around and have a very different approach to how they react with, interact with, and care for the wood. Okay, um, you have set me up for one of my favourite rants. I'm so pleased because I completely, I, co- I completely disagree with you actually about that characterization of <gasps> the Greco-Roman gods. Um, destruction in Roman myth is overwhelmingly feminine. Um, the gods, so Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, um, gods of the three worlds of, of the sky, the sea, the underworld. Um, they are very much the gods of the natural order of things and the way things are supposed to be. But in mythology, when you want wildness, when you want danger, you always go to the goddesses. So um, Hera, for example, is, yes, she's she's the goddess of marriage in the home, but she's also the goddess behind storms. Um, and in Virgil's Aeneid, the Juno, the Roman version of Hera, is just constantly stirring up storms both literal and metaphorical the cause of all trouble that happens for the heroes and this is like one of the fundamental texts of roman culture and then even more than that um the most dangerous goddesses of all are um aphrodite the goddess of love who causes nearly all problems nearly all the problems in greek tragedy uh in the trojan war um are the fault of aphrodite and then Artemis, who is the goddess of the wilderness. And this I find really interesting. Artemis is the goddess of wild places. Men who come near her are punished severely. Um, the myth of Acteon, he accidentally stumbles over Artemis having a bath in a beautiful woodland spring. Um, she turns him into a, a stag and he's torn to death by his own hunting dogs. And this is, she's the goddess of hunters but she has no mercy for this hunter um, because she is not something that can be tamed. And it, as well as being the goddess of the wilderness, she's also the goddess of unmarried women and of childbirth. And that might seem like, like quite a random collection, but it's really not because the underlying logic is these are all things that men can't control. Um, unmarried women in, well, in Greek myth are, are, dangerous um you, you could actually say that like the the main theme of all greek tragedy is that unbonked women go bonkers um 
So it's all about women have to be controlled, have to be married, have to be having children, have to be behaving themselves, um, or they become incredibly dangerous. And Artemis is this incredibly dangerous figure who represents that. Um, you also said some really interesting things in your question about like Victorian stuff, but I got so excited about Romans that I forgot what you said. I'm really sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, what I was going to sort of turn it around and like I said I was a huge generalization and I, I knew that you know you pick it apart and that that's absolutely cool and you are right of course um Artemis is just the the most I don't want to say fickle because she's very determined but yeah it's kind of like flip a coin and which way is she going to go today but I was thinking more along the lines of sort of um the natural elements that they're associated with because no one can deny that the Greek and Roman gods are a bloodthirsty bunch whatever sex they are but I was thinking you know Poseidon's got the whole sea and Zeus has his thunderbolt, whereas Hera has a peacock, and um, the goddess of wisdom has an owl. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of more softly, softly, just on that very, very basic level of what they're associated with. Um, but what I was saying about in relation to the Victorian um, section was how you very definitely overturn those gender roles. Um, and it's very good at a time when obviously Victorian times when you had very strong gender roles. I really like how you've changed it around, not only how Silver and Tobias interact with the wood, but I also like the fact that Mrs. Silver goes out and she is the most fearsome and the most deadly of all of them in a role that you would expect a monster hunter to be a man. She's kind of like an early Buffy, really, isn't she? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, no, she's my favourite. Um, writing her was such a joy I didn't actually intend her to be like that. So you sometimes have these moments as a writer where uh, something appears and you're writing like, oh, that's really good. I wonder who thought of that. Wasn't me. Uh, and I wrote Mrs. Silver's like into the into Henry's backstory is like, yes, he's got a very fearsome mother. And I was thinking like the bulk standard fearsome mother character. Ima imagine Aunt Agatha from Bertie Wooster. And then the fearsome mother turns up and she is dangerous and she is deadly and she's in some ways a combination of um of henry silver and tobias finch in that sorry that was my cat uh she's in some ways a combination of the two main characters or of their most deadly elements she has uh silver's victorian approach to the wilderness and to the monsters that represent nature which is to take control of them, to understand them, to ultimately defeat them. Silver himself doesn't have the guts to do that. His, his conquest, if you like, is all about knowledge. It's about learning everything about them and, and categorizing things. Uh, Mrs. Silver is a hunter. And then that is something she has in com common with Tobias, who is also a hunter, but he is a hunter. Um, I conceived of him as a hunter of, of the magical and the mysterious in terms of a caretaker and a manager, um, this—I mean—the role he plays in the wood is a role that's existed for centuries, which is really the role of like gamekeeper, woodsman. Um, it's it's looking after things, and that sometimes means hunting what's dangerous. Um, whereas Mrs. Silver's approach is less that of a caretaker and more of an exterminator, and she is she's a very dangerous character. She's great fun to write. So I'm glad um, that you started talking about um, Tobias um, and Henry uh, because, you know, and obviously they're very different personalities, um, but they're both wild men of the woods, um, you know, in their own ways. Why did you want to kind of highlight these differences of character um, and yet situate them in the same 
kind of rural location and and still play with that. I, because I, what I really liked about Tobias's character is is quite. It's interesting how you kind of came at it from once you begin to learn his backstory, which I won't spoil it too much in case anyone hasn't read the, the novella. But um, it's interesting because he's in a way he was never the main character of his story in the past. He was this kind of sidekick character who ends up becoming a master of his own story. And yet his old life haunts him. Um, and I feel like he kind of carries that around with him, this idea of not being master of you know, his own space. Um, and actually it's his relationship with the wood and his becoming a nature spirit in a way that restores some, restores his own story to him, if that makes sense. It is so lovely to talk to someone who really gets something you've written. Like, yes, Yay. that's it, Lucy. Thank you. That was really, that was exactly what I was trying to do. Um, I wanted when I was writing Tobias to, well, yes, to write a sidekick, to write a, a background character. And, and that's really what he is and always has been in his own story. He's always been secondary, even as um, even as a woodland spirit. Again, I will try not to spoil it, but he is secondary. There is another player um, at work in, in the woods um, long before Henry Silver show, shows up on the scene. Um, I think one of the reasons I wanted to do two very different approaches to being the wild man of the woods is that it was fun and it was funny to me um, and writing is very hard work and if you can't laugh at your own jerk jokes what's the point um, so I found it really satisfying first to write that sort of very reserved very quiet character um, who doesn't give a lot away even when you're in his perspective and in his point of view in the, in the narration uh, Tobias uh keeps a lot back and holds a lot down. Um, and it was fun for me to go from that to a character who was the the diametric opposite, um, who had a lot of feelings and would like to tell you about all of them at length, whether you like it or not. Um, and then both of them, because they are both in the same position of being in this powerful and complex relationship with a wood, with uh, a woodland, um, I wanted to do that because it helped me to drag out the contrast um in how differently they approach being um in being supernatural figures because uh tobias although he has been in the wood for centuries and although he is essentially a magical being uh you'd never know it by the way he lives um he lives a very quiet life a very um ordinary life uh, at the time I wrote it, nobody was talking about cottage core yet, but that's what it is. Um, whereas uh, Henry, within like within a year of becoming a powerful woodland spirit, is uh, doing a whole lot of bloody magic um, and going all out with um, sort of the wild and the mysterious and making strange things happen around him and demolishing his own house because he's sulking. Um, and I enjoyed that character contrast, and it's one of the joys of writing of writing romance. Really, is that you get to explore two different characters um, and how they fit together, and how they don't, and what's the same and what's different. For me, when I read about Tobias, he was very much of the wood. He was to me, he was his own sort of tree, in that he was so solid and still and. He wouldn't be distracted or, you know, he's not flighty in any way. So for me, he was very much 
a representative, uh, a human representative of the wood itself. So I did start to wonder, you know, is was that was was he always like that? Was you know was the wood impacting him? Was he impacting the wood? And you know when how those things interplayed and and if say Silver would become more like Tobias over hundreds of years in in kind of his a stillness that would overcome him. I did really wonder about that, but it's it's it was really fun to see the the two different sides of the same role. I think um they, they all, I don't think Silver would ever have become still. I think I think the character as I created him couldn't have done that. But also Tobias's enormous like stillness and, and treeness is only one element of um well of the natural world um of the woodland that he was part of. Uh and I think Silver's sort of spectacular moods and his flightiness and his feyness, maybe is the word I want here. He he's very fey. Um I think that is equally part of, of the wood. Um Although you have to step back and take a long view to appreciate it, because things change slowly in nature, but boy, do they change! Um, and they can be uh, extraordinary. Things can happen. Um, the thing I'm thinking of now is, uh, well, the the titular drowned country of the second book, the 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 land that's sunk beneath the waves um, at the end of the last ice age. You uh, took the words right out of my mouth because I was just about to say that that's how I see those two characters about, you know, the fact that when you walk in a woodland, um, it isn't just stillness that you that, that kind of descends around you. There's always so much happening in there, little scurrying motions and in the air, in the earth, between the branches. Um, and it's a really interesting balance of um, kind of green, still life and the kind of bubbling stuff that runs atop that, like little creatures mostly um, and bird calls and things. I, that's what I really like about um, Silver in the Wood and the two kind of wild men because they just have these two faces that, you know, that you can, and, and it's exactly the kind of atmosphere that you experience when you do walk into a wild place. There's, it's almost never, all the wild places I've ever been to are almost never still. Um, they have this wonderful union of slow green stillness and this bubbling kind of current of life that runs atop that um that's what i really like about those two characters someone mentioned terry pratchett earlier and i always think of is it thief of time there's one of his books where uh, he speeds up a tree growing and says now when a tree grows fast the sound it makes is vroom and i thought that that was what i wanted um so silver is the woodland speeded up because he's fast. <laughs> well, as much as I appreciated reading, like you say, the two different sides, and I really liked how Tobias and Silver represented the wood in their own particular way, I have to say that there was one point, and I'm not going to give spoilers away, but there's one point when the two of them are having a conversation about which one of them would be a better caretaker of the woods. And it comes down to the idea that actually neither of them would be because there's just too much humanity in them. And as you were saying, there's there's fairness in them, but not quite enough, not quite enough to wholly give themselves to the wood. And they still yearn for human company, for human relationships. And even the idea of immortality, as fantastic as it is, comes at the price of having to give up your humanity to be part of the wood. And I thought that was a really wonderful kind of observation that yes you can be a nature spirit you 
you know, you can be part of the wood, you can represent it down to a T, you can use its magic, you can rep- you can interact with it. But at the end of the day, you're still human. And there's this other, an otherness to the wood and to the spirits within it that you're never quite going to capture. I feel like one of the joys of, um, well, going to a wild place is the knowledge that later you can go home and be indoors and be in a comfy bed, uh, possibly with a glass of wine next to you, uh, or vodka. Um, and I think that when you write about the English woodland and the woods of the Green Hollow duology are very much English woods, you are not actually writing about a purely wild space. The most ancient woodlands of the British Isles are very old. Some of them are more than a thousand years old, but for all that time, they have been managed spaces. Um, the woods are not separate from human life and human existence. Uh, human beings have been going into the woods and doing things with them and cutting down trees and trapping animals and um, setting their pigs loose to forage uh, for centuries, for millennia. Um, and I wanted to talk about the, the relationship between humanity and the woods, not just in terms of here's, here's some beautiful nature, isn't it beautiful, but in terms of how do you enter and then also how do you leave? Um, and how do you enjoy and experience this, this wild space without losing the, the, the joy of being human? It's interesting when you talk about sort of being, you know, the English wood is a very specific kind of wildness to it. Um, so I'm from Australia. And when I was a kid, I loved hearing the Aboriginal Dreamtime stories and a lot of their creation myths, you know, they, rather than explaining, like, I don't know why things are the way they are, really, they explain how a river came to be or how this particular landscape came to be. And they, most of their gods and spirits are all spirits of the animals that were there in Australia. And they're, you know, they're, they're just really specific to those landmarks and you can never separate those narratives from that very specific environmental feature. Um, but I really love them because they are kind of specific to that. Whereas, you know, uh, the English wood has its own very particular feeling to it, I guess, as well. And it's as you say, you know, when in the beginning of this this episode, when you were talking about that feeling to describe the wildness in the woods and and when you're you're in there, you have that a moment where you can kind of go, wow, this is incredible. And I think that, you know, I'm probably going to come across as a total dork here, but Whenever I'm out in the wilderness, I kind of get that feeling. But there are very different kinds of emotional responses to different sorts of lands- landscapes. So being in the English woods is a very specific feeling and different smells and sounds and movements to you know being in the outback of Australia. And you can so see how and why the, the spirits of those lands are so very different. I completely agree with you. I think um, I love writing about place and about relationships with place because I think you're right that the, the specific places have specific feelings and that's to do as well with their their history and their rootedness 
um, well, if you like, the people's rootedness in that place. I told a story about English woodlands um, and I kept the feel of it very English, um, even though I could easily pull in a lot of stuff from my my classical education if I wanted to. And I, But you can't tell a Mediterranean story set in the British Isles. It doesn't work. Um, and the specificity of nature stories and the closeness of that relationship between humans and nature, it relies on trying to think how to put this. It relies on time, on people being in the same place over a long time and people belonging in that place. It relies on history um, and that sense of connectedness to a landscape which can only come from history. And that is, I suppose, one of the draws of folklore, of folk stories. It's that feeling of belonging, um, even in this extraordinary and wild place. The story helps you understand how you belong in it. This is a really good opportunity to just um, bring in a, one of Charlotte's questions that I think is very pertinent to what you were saying about being unable to kind of transpose, you know, a Mediterranean character into an English woodland, you know, and and I think she was wondering whether it's possible to to mix folklores up like that and and to say, you know, whether it's possible to kind of to have to have an English woodland setting, but to tell a a folkloric Mediterranean type of story rather than picking the sorts of creatures that you would find in, you know, that are much, much more closely associated with England um, or the British Isles. And um, so do you think it's, um, do you think it's possible to, to transplant pieces of folklore out of their original natural setting into a different one? Or is it difficult to do that because our natural landscape is, is the thing that birthed those folkloric creatures in the very beginning? I'm going to say both yes and no. Um, I realised, like, as I was saying it, that actually I'm completely lying. I did steal a Mediterranean figure um, for an English woodland, and that's dryads. Uh, dryads are, are not, uh, if you like, native to the British Isles. Um, even the name is not um, a British name. It's, it's Greek. Um, but... I guess some part of me deep down is just fundamentally convinced that trees have pretty girls in them. So yes, clearly you can steal bits and you can make it work, but within limits. Uh, for example, um, in Slavic folklore, there's this, this fantastic figure of the Leshy, um, this dangerous woodland spirit. It's so cool. Uh, I don't know enough about it is the thing to use it. And if I did try to use it, it wouldn't quite fit. Uh, I think I, I could steal dryads from the classics because I, I know lots and lots and lots about that. So so I suppose the answer really is, is you've got to do your research. Um, and I think I said earlier, research is for chumps or rather research is for people who work harder than I do. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily choose to choose to do that when I already have at my fingertips um, English folklore or an English landscape to draw on. At the same time, it is totally possible to do that sort of wild crossover. Let's throw in every culture and every bit of folklore and the kitchen sink. And there's a really, uh, like the most beautiful example I can think of is actually Ben Aronovich's Rivers of London books. 
but there Aronovich does I mean it's fantastic it's glorious he goes well it's London everybody from everywhere ends up in London at some point um, and he's just taken that sort of gloriously diverse and vibrant atmosphere of the city and said well the folklore of a city like that is going to be gloriously diverse and vibrant because that's what the city is and I love it I could never do it um it's love it's always great to read a writer doing something fantastic and go gosh that's brilliant I couldn't do that at all yeah and I suppose the the human experience is there is a universality to it so we often find pieces of folklore even though the you know the I love delving into other cultures folklore very often we find parallels extremely close parallels with our own folkloric traditions and our own folkloric creatures um so i feel like it's you know you're never you know going to run out of choice when it comes to you know if you if you want to try and do some transplanting or if you just want to you know keep it to the creatures that are native to a particular setting i feel like there's still it's still going to appeal to a really wide range of, of people yeah i think what i'd say is if you're going if you're going to go um well, if you're going to start pulling in other folklores, then you need to know what you're talking about. You have to do your research to make it work. Well, so I think what you said about taking the dryads from Greek mythology and transplanting them to England, I mean, we do have sort of various ideas that there are living souls within our trees. I mean, you have all the, um, the traditions of wassailing things and spirit of the, the corn and all that kind of stuff. Um and I think you're right. It's a very, very small step to then say, well, actually, the spirit of this tree is uh, is a pretty young woman with brambles for hair and all this kind of stuff. So I think it does help if you've got something similar that you can transplant. But I also think there's there is something to be gained from saying it's similar but slightly different. And you can just go with that that weirdness. So the one that I really liked, I did a flash fiction Christmas piece. Um, a couple of years back using the Yule cat and everybody has this idea that when it comes to Christmas you have a spirit of some description that will come and punish you if you've been bad and I really like the Yule cat because I think it's an Icelandic tradition and the Yule cat will eat you on Christmas Eve if you don't have a pair of new socks <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> I know and it, it's so close to our own idea of yeah well we kind of imported Krampus but this idea of you know being punished and being rewarded at Christmas time and yet at the same time it's just that slightly slight bizarreness that you can just bring in to just give it an extra twist so I think there's there is something to say about transplanting other cultures folklore into our own and it can work brilliantly but like you said you've got to do research of both cultures and kind of go okay if I'm taking this fire demon from over there that usually lives in a volcano how am I going to transplant it into London or wherever you think you, you want to put this story yeah and actually obviously I mean I think very um frequently there are some creatures that are actually whose behaviors are tied quite closely to you know an indigenous people so in that case it would be not working or borderline disrespectful to take that out of context because you know this is what's so great about the world you know there are definitely plenty of cultures out there who are, who approach life and parts of of existence very differently to to other cultures so i think there is probably that to take into account as well i think it's very natural for people to look for samenesses and similarities um i'm going to i'm so sorry i'm going to go straight back to the romans uh the 
Native Britons had a goddess, Sulis, who was worshipped um, at the shrine, well, at the natural hot springs, what is now Bath. Uh, when the Romans arrived, um, they listened to what the Native Britons had to say about Sulis and the goddess who existed here, and they were like, hmm, yes, that is clearly another name for our goddess Minerva. They are clearly the same goddess. They're doing the same things or close enough for, for government work. Uh, we will now build her a great big temple. And you can go to Bath today and see the remains of the, the massive temple complex of Sulis Minerva around the sacred spring, which smells strongly of rotten eggs. But uh, maybe Sulis was into that. Um, but anyway, that, uh, that sort of that all encompassing uh, approach to like spirits of nature to to local folklores um the idea that you can go somewhere else and say well what are the stories associated with this landscape that makes sense we recognize and respect that i think that is quite a natural human thing to do i really love how you brought in that story of uh, Celis Minerva because it is one of my favorites um and this idea that they just kind of went yeah it's close enough well just keep worshipping the same goddess but just call her by a different name and you know it'll all be fine and i really love how they did it and they do that in christianity as well like adopting midwinter festivals and going okay well it's going to be our christmas and things like that so i think it is something that has happened throughout history in certainly religious aspect so you know it's not too much of a jump for fiction writers to go well actually you know i can blur the lines a little bit and people will accept that because we've got a history of it yeah although although as as has been said it it if you're going to do that, do it respectfully and do it with thought. But uh, that goes for most writing. So we've been talking about Romans and how they would take over local deities. We talked about how Christianity would come along and, and take some of the celebrations and turn them into their own, how folklore across countries would kind of spread and, and mutate. Uh, so just thinking about that and following that line of thought, as a general rule, we no longer worship nature deities. So when it comes to crafting fiction where such deities exist, how tricky is it to interweave such a story in a society that predominantly follows Christianity? Uh, Do you think it's easier to have your characters within a completely secondary fantasy world to avoid all modern preconceptions of spirits and deities? Or do you think there is little ways you can slip it all in and still make it feel real and believable? Well, I would say that... um... Firstly, I love preconceptions. I think they're really useful for a writer. They save you a lot of time. Um, if you can assume that your audience knows or believe or thinks they know X, Y, and Z, uh, it gives you room to work um, and it gives you something to bounce off against. Uh, and I would also say that um, I don't think secondary world fantasy avoids anything. Uh, because your readers, unfortunately, are not in the secondary world, so they will still bring their conceptions along with them to wherever you take them. Um, it is true that uh, nature deities, certainly in the in the sense that they exist in in the Green Hollow books, um, are not widely worshipped anymore. Although, of course, some people do still worship uh, natural spirits and the natural world. Um, I felt like it gave me some room to be a little bit adventurous but also i feel like in many ways uh religion like christianity uh works so completely differently to a religion like say ancient polytheism basically i feel like there isn't really a conflict uh a wild man of the woods figure is a completely different thing to a um a 
distant monotheistic deity or indeed a very personal monotheistic deity uh, which exists outside and beyond nature, um, as is the case in most strands of Christianity. The green man figure, right, the, the, the myth of the green man is in many ways a fairly modern creation, um, which a lot of people don't realise. Uh, a, a lot of our ideas about the green man are 19th and even 20th century in origin and don't really seem to have a very clear history before that. But where it comes from, these 19th and 20th century folklorists going, ah, yes, the green man figure, the, the wild man of the woods, um, where it comes from is actually from images in churches, which is you can go into quite a lot of churches in this country, actually, especially older ones. Um, and you find these carvings of foliate heads of, of, of human faces made out of leaves and branches. Um, and this idea of things slipping in around the edges of um, a coexistence between the, the native folklore of a place and the figures out of myth, um, out of very old myth or you like out of landscape myth somehow having a place still in a predominantly Christian society. I think that that's a really good example of it. If you can go into a, a church, a, a beautiful Christian church, and see a beautiful image of something that is very definitely not Christian, and it's not quite clear what it is or where it comes from or how it fits. And the green man is such a figure. I liked, um, you, you made a comment about how, kind of modern society they're so different from the people who potentially believed in these things or or where you're setting your narrative and that makes me think about how what one of the things that i really like about nature spirits and things with, that are portrayed in stories now are they're often used as quite obviously for metaphors rather than necessarily you should believe in this creature this this being um, and one I'm thinking of is uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender, and there's an episode where there's a nature spirit attacking this village because they've been just, you know, felling the forest, destroying the habitat for the animals and so on. And so the spirit is angry. And, you know, and this is a real metaphor for, you know, climate change and, and basically not looking after nature and, and being kind to the nature around us. And I think that given the distance that we have, modern readers and so on have from the the times where we actually did believe that it gives the use of these kinds of folkloric beings a different a different approach it's a it's a different way to use it than it would have been used say if the story had been told at that time yeah that makes sense the the, the allegorizing use of, of folklore I'm not always a huge fan of allegory, actually. I think it can be um, it can be heavy-handed. Uh, but you're absolutely right that that is one way to use it, and it's um, one of the joys of working in the fantasy space is that you can make your metaphors very, very literal. Well, I've, I've just written two books about having a relationship with a wood, and they are romances. It's very satisfying sometimes to, to take a metaphor and, and, and unpack it so far all the way out that you end up with a world to explore. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Emily. It's been a wonderful conversation. And honestly, any of our listeners who haven't read your books just should go out and buy that and also 
maybe take a, a walk in a beautiful English woodland and uh, just breathe in that wonderful feeling that we get when we're in them. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It has been a real pleasure talking to you all. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.